Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silken in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cogliano. How are you doing, Frank? David! I'm great, thank you very much. Now, listeners may not know this, but this, well, you may not know this if you look at the episode title, this is our 200th episode. Congratulations! Congratulations to you, Frank. A double century! Which, again, in podcast years is is just like a million, because very few podcasts make it uh, into three digits, nevertheless. Uh, over 200 so congratulations to us for, for doing that well thank you david for for doing this with me and thank you to our listeners especially thank you to our listeners <laughs> yeah. if anyone has listened to all 200 episodes <laughs> let us know you listened to all 200 episodes and we will we will um we don't have any prizes or anything but but we, we will, will we will honor you, you in some something way. yes you deserve <laughs> praise and honor for listening to all these episodes anyway thanks for doing this yes david. thank you right uh Big in the news in recent weeks and on everyone's Facebook and Twitter feeds has been Wordle, the the five-letter word game, uh, which is only one of a number of trends that have really, fads that have caught on during the pandemic. First, I think, was sourdough, and everyone was making sourdough two years ago. And then there were various other sort of permutations of things that have been very important to people for a short amount of time and then vanished from the uh, popular conversation. So we want to talk about fads today. Uh, and see if we can sort of make sense of, of why some things have become really popular and, and what fads, uh, some interesting and weird fads in American history look like. Yes, although I think we first have to attempt to reach a, find a definition of fads, uh, what a fad is in order to, to do this, because this proved to be much more complicated than we realized as we started talking through it right before the episode. So I think you know it when you see it, maybe. Maybe. Anyway, a, a definition that I found on the internet, which is a fad, the internet's not going to last before, <laughs> um, is an intense and widely shared enthusiasm for something, especially one that is short-lived, colon, a craze. Is that an acceptable working definition of a fad for you, David? I think it's a good place to start, right? I mean, I think the things that define fads is they tend to show up very quickly and then disappear equally quickly. How long they have to be popular, I think that depends on what time period you're talking about. A, a, a 19th century fad is something that lasts a year just because I think culture moves pretty slowly, relatively speaking. Whereas I think today fads last for weeks, days, hours maybe. I think that, that we live in a very different world in terms of how things, culture moves and things that were uh, popular can, can, can appear and disappear that much more quickly. I, no, I think that's going to last a little bit longer than that. Um, if only because often these are, there are there's material culture around Indeed, fads. Fads are often things. There are fads for things. Things, yeah. yeah and they to have sure. to be produced and sold and everything. In fact, do we, one of the things we were debating before we went on the air, and I, I think we might disagree on this, mm. I think there are kind of categories of fads, which is there are faddish activities, like, I don't know, Planking or the cinnamon challenge in recent years, or that number. Did so, you engage in either of those? Right? I did not. Okay, no, I did not. Um, but but so there's there's faddish activities, and then there are faddish things like again we'll be talking about some of these today. The hula hoop. Mm. Would you uh, would you accept that distinction or not? Well, I, I think fads are fundamentally about activities, right? And sometimes they have props that are required. You can't do the cinnamon challenge without the cinnamon, but. Whatever it is the prop is, whether it's a hula hoop or, um, you know, a slinky or, you know, what have you, it has to be an item that is relatively accessible and inexpensive. So that barrier to entry has to be pretty low. Right? I think in order for things to spread quickly, it has to be sort of a, a whatever the physical item is. If there is a physical item, it has to be a, an inexpensive one. I think there has to be a skill set involved in a fad. But it has to be a skill set that one can acquire relatively quickly. So I think you can have a dance that's a fad, but it can't be a complicated dance. So the Macarena can be a fad, but you can't have a ballet be a fad because I think there's a sort of a level of skill involved that, that, that you can't pick up in days or weeks or months the way you can learn the Macarena in an afternoon. Um, so you're, 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 if, I, if I'm hearing you correctly, you're modifying our definition slightly and saying that it has to be short-lived, which was, again, mm. part of the part of the one of the characteristics in the definition I, I shared. The barrier to entry has to be low, so it has to be something that 
it's lots a, of people can do. do. Yeah, I think so. Uh, does it have to be readily understandable? I don't understand Wordle because I've never done it. I've only ever seen people post about it, and I just never started. So I, I, Wordle is something I'm aware of, but don't care about. Okay. But, 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 okay, but people if, I care about like Wordle, and that's yes, fine. If uh, I want to explain Wordle to you, and I've, I've not played Wordle, but I've so seen We have two people who haven't done but, Wordle. But, but I've read enough about Wordle where I could explain it to you in, in 30 seconds if I wanted to. So is Wordle done as a fad now that the New York Times has bought it? Is that the end of it because it's been co-opted? Or is that the ultimate success? Is that testimony to ultimate success? success. Well, that's, a, that's an interesting question because I think one of the things that makes fads, especially fads in, in the, the 20th century, uh, interesting is the relationship between, and I guess this is true for, for this, you know, all of America, is the relationship between fads and the market. And in order for fads to work, they have to seem... I think grassroots and cool, um, and, and to the extent that the market then sort of undermines that, I think shit, you know, Wordle may just be, not be as cool when it, when you know when it was made by one guy for his girlfriend, that had sort of gave it a level of, of popular credence that it may lack now that it's owned by the New York Times. Um, you know, uh, likewise, I think some of the commercial products in the 20th century, the people are trying to sort of astroturf fads and to make things into fads and how do you go about doing that i think marketing departments toy companies around the world are, are trying to sort of figure out that 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 mechanic what is it you can do to make something into a fad make it seem cool that people are willing to take it up even if it's just a thing you buy but does it matter whether it's as you to use your term astroturf if it's a created fad or a kind of organic fad that's just kind yeah. of well, there's about fad. I mean, does I think, the origins matter do the origins matter well i think you know, the, the fads we're going to sort of talk about, you know, the ones from the 19th century, especially the ones from the early part of the 20th century, most of those seem to be sort of organic, rising from somebody did something interesting and other people were copying it. Um, I think one of the things you're seeing in, you know, some more recent fads is an effort to sort of try to create fads for commercial purposes intensely, intent with an intent, whereas some of these are earlier fads, it's unclear who, if anybody's making money off of it? Well, not least because if you can monetize a fan, mm. it can be quite lucrative. Oh, to be sure. Only for a brief period of time. Why don't we, why don't we take this chronologically? Why don't we, we, we do... Just one other thing to add about by definition. I mean, and I think this helps to sort of make sense of, of some of these early fads. Is the word fad seems to enter the English language sometime in the middle of the 19th century, but it doesn't really gain prominence until the 20th century, and it's modern usage of the way that people are you know, using it to talk about Wordle or sourdough or whatever it is. Um, the words in the 19th century were either craze or mania, uh, which I think sort of speaks to, to how people understood fads then. It was not just something that was popular, but something that, that tapped into um, both an individual and a collective uh, insanity for a particular activity or for a particular item. Um, I mean, craze and mania in the 19th century context both have sort of pathological They do have pathological. And there are well, lots of these, there is a there is not only the mania or a craze for a particular activity or, or item, but there's pushback against it. There are people who are fearful that this obsession that people have with whatever it is, is, is detrimental. There's a moral panic often attached to, the, to these fads. Because um, some of them are kind of dangerous and stupid. And, I, and I'm, I'm, you know, when I look back at some of the things people are doing, they don't always make sense from the outside. Well, the Tide Pod Challenge, for example, to take a recent example, is very dangerous. Oh, to be sure, yes. Don't, listeners, do, do not, not do that. Cinnamon Challenge, don't do that. There's actually most of these things. Don't, don't do them. All right, let's, let's talk about, are there any fads in the colonial era? Can we talk about, is, or is that a thing that doesn't happen? Well, th this is interesting, David, and I, I want to pose a question to you, because I, I really struggled with this, in part because I'm not a, necessarily a cultural historian of leisure in, in, in my period of expertise, and I was trying to... TJ isn't, like, wondering what the kids are doing and doing the latest TikTok dance? Not, not to my knowledge. Um, you know, I mean... And I thought, so here's my dilemma. I want, I want to put this to you. Not dilemma, the, the confusion, the question that has arisen as I, as I contemplated this. I can't think of things 
Again, I'm not a historian of play. I'm sure there are things I just haven't mm. thought of or couldn't couldn't find in preparing for this episode. However, while there was undoubtedly play in the colonial period and early national mm. period, uh, and people part, you know, uh, we know that there were cockfighting and gambling and horse racing and all these kinds of things. Um, they're not necessarily fads as as we're using the term. But does their absence mean that this activity wasn't going on? Or that because fads by their nature, unless there are there are particular objects like hacky sacks or hula hoops or whatever, or Pokemon cards attached to them, it's ephemeral behavior. Mm. And by its very ephemeralness, but by definition, that means it vanishes and we, we forget it. So, so it's simply been lost. This activity has been lost to history or to posit another view. Most of the fads we're going to talk about, and you've already alluded to this, are either created by or certainly facilitated by the market and the market economy, whether it's uh, because the market disseminates information or produces artifacts that can be sold. And we know that the market, there was a market in the 18th, 17th and 18th century, but it wasn't as sophisticated as what we'll see in the 19th century. So our fads, so basically, have we forgotten them? Did they occur in the colonial period and we've forgotten them? And they've been lost to history by their ephemeral mm. because of their ephemeralness, or are fads as we're discussing them only possible once you get a fully fledged market economy and a kind of rudimentary capitalist economy in the nineteenth century in the United States? So well, I'm, I mean, I'm I'm asking you what I, you think. Yeah, about that. I think that those are both interesting hypotheses. I think you know fads probably existed in as much as people are making interesting choices about how they dress and things they do and. But I'm wondering if the fads are intensely local, you know, in terms of how do you then, how does a fad spread beyond a particular I mean, community? Uh, you know, Burning Witches was very faddish in, in Salem, Massachusetts in 1692. I, I, think, I think the Hanging Witches. <laughs> yeah, sorry, not Burning Witches. But, yeah. The Pressing with Stones was really the popular one that didn't catch on too much. Um, but, I mean, I think the, the how does a, a fad craze... A mania, how does it spread from one town to the next? You know, now I think there are myriad mechanisms that through which those kinds of things can spread, and I think that speaks to how fast things spread in modern culture. Um, you can't have a similar kind of rapid dissemination in, in the 18th century, I don't think. Um, but I'm wondering if there were sort of hyper local fads for things where, where people wore but, certain but, clothing in certain ways and because because somebody did it and they thought it was cool and then everyone else said let's do it that way well undoubtedly although although i've got two responses to that does a fad does one of our definitions have to be that it's widespread or an element of our definition hmm. and therefore is saying a fad is in, in, inherently local or intensely local hmm. is, is is that a fad or is that just a local peculiarity uh and secondly you've twice mentioned kind of clothing and appearance I think one of the things we may not discuss, in mm. part because neither of us are terribly fashionable ourselves, is <laughs> to what extent are fashion choices fads, or are they simply fashion choices? Is that a separate category? Uh, I think I think fashion can definitely be a, be a be a fad, and I think sometimes they are described as fads. And so I think if we're going to use people's usage of fad as as, as our as a way of definition i think you know the bloomers for instance from the 1850 they talk about a bloomer craze in 1851 where nobody wore bloomers in 1849 and all of a sudden everyone's wearing bloomers in 1851 or at least lots of women are um and you want to explain oh so bloomers are sure We'll go to our first, because uh, it seems like one of the earliest examples of this. Uh, bloomers are essentially uh, large trousers worn by women. Uh, they're sort of a little bit like, described as a little bit like harem pants from Turkey. They're described as being imported from Turkey. At least that was the, the descriptions that was given for them in the, um, uh, in the 1850s. Uh, they are called bloomers. They're named after Amelia Bloomer, who was a, an early feminist. Um, actually, Amelia Bloomer was probably not the first prominent feminist to wear them. Libby Miller probably was, but Bloomer was more prominent, and so uh, Bloomer's uh, name got attached to them. 
Um, and they were seen as an alternative to uh, the dominant female fashion at the time in which uh, you know, people were wearing long dresses and corsets, which were very confining. They didn't allow for a lot of freedom of movement. Uh, and so uh, bloomers were seen as, as an, worn as an alternative to, to those. And so it was a, both a fashion statement and, and a political statement. Um, feminists actually didn't call them bloomers. They called them freedom dresses because it allowed them to, to do things that one could not wear in, in the dominant fashion style at the time. So, but again, I'm interested in the distinction between a fad and a fashion. Um, well, I think partially it's about how quickly this took over prominence because they do talk about it as a craze and it went from being not present on the landscape to being something that was very prevalent in in a really relatively short window of time. And they start to have um, bloomer balls and bloomer picnics that are sort of to celebrate this particular item. So there's a culture that develops around them that's, that's beyond simply wearing a particular color shirt. Or a, you know, a particular style of clothing. There, there's layers attached to it as well, and people's identity with it. The value they attached to it was much more than, oh, I've got the latest Nikes on or something. Um, and it also disappeared relatively quickly. Uh, they were popular, especially in 1851. They are sort of decline in popularity in the, by the end of the 1850s, and by the Civil War, basically. By the end of the Civil War, at least very few people are wearing bloomers. That actually, bloomers, though, do make a reappearance with another fad in the 1890s, and that's the bicycle riding fad, where people say, hey, bicycles are really hard to ride in a dress. We should, we should wear bloomers instead. Um, so that's a sort of a fad that comes back um, to in response, actually, to, an, to another fad. Um, but, but, I mean, we're getting slightly ahead of us, ourselves, and I, I, I don't mm. want to get out over our skis, but... Um, the bicycle riding fad of the 1890s. When is something a fad or when is it simply something that becomes popular and thus part of the culture? I mean, the, the bicycle mm. remains ubiquitous now 130 plus years later. And the fad, if it's a fad, it's a very, been a very long lasting fad. Yeah. I mean, oh, to be sure. You know, so, so it, you know, my joke about the internet being a fad was just that. It's a joke because clearly, the, you know, people said that in the 90s, the internet's a fad. It's not, right? I mean, it's... Yeah, there's, totally... lo there's lots of long-lasting things that are originally greeted as fads. Right, so are these... <laughs> forgive the pun. False fa false fad <laughs> operations? Okay, I'm not going to try to repeat that <laughs> As opposed fast. to false flag operations of these false fads? Well, I mean, I, I think that the cultural place that the bicycle has in the 1890s is a very different than the cultural place it has any time since then. You know, there were cross-country bicycle races. There, 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 you know, bicycle as an identity becomes very important to, to many people. Uh, you may ask yourself, why do bicycles become very popular in the, in the 1890s? And there's some technological reasons. That's when the safety bike uh, is invented. That's when the sort of modern um, chain drive is introduced, uh, which makes bicycle riding much safer. And they get inflatable tires, which makes it a lot more comfortable to ride. Uh, there are bicycles before that, but again, you're, what you're describing is a technological revolution and the creation of a thing that's remained. Yes, and persisted. But I think it's it's the the speed at which it, it gripped the nation as a an activity is quite striking. And one of the things about fads that that, that I find, and I think we're going to sort of see, especially in the 20th century, is the relationship between fads and times of economic crisis. Because you see lots of fads during the Great Depression, for instance. And the bicycle fad comes right, it starts with the Depression of 1893. That's when the bicycle fad takes off. And so how do you square people's fascination, obsession with bicycles with the fact that everybody is out of work? And the Depression is 1893. There was a quote from, I think it was uh, the New York Times from 1893. People were buying bicycles, quote, whether they could afford them or not. You know, and I think it's that obsessive relationship with this new item that made it a fad. Okay, but one of the things you mentioned earlier, and one of you, the, the, the important qualifiers to our definition that you added, mm. and I think it was an important one, 
was low barrier to entry. entry. How expensive were bicycles in the 1890s? I, I don't know. No. Okay. So, so the the one of the things that happens with the uh, introduction of these new, sort of new technologies, the, the safety bike and the, and the tires, the price of bicycles actually goes down tremendously. So it becomes an accessible um, item for people to purchase, and so it becomes um, it's it's still you know an investment, but it's not very much of an investment. Um, it's much cheaper than all the Pelotons people bought during lockdown, um, you know. And given what the what the bicycle offered compared to the alternatives, which would have been, say, like a horse, bicycles are actually very relatively cheap. Um, but actually, when you know, when the automobile is introduced first at the end of that same decade, lots of journalists dismissed the automobile and said, "Look, we saw the same thing when people introduced bicycles, and this is going to be a." big cultural event for a couple of years and then it's going to disappear. Because um, if people's relationship with the bicycle during that decade, I think, especially in, in 1893 to 1896, you know, it's it's seen as as much more fundamental to, to revolutionizing culture and people's identity being built around it than simply my bicycle that I ride to the gym every day. Right. Um, I, I, again, I'm not sure I'm persuaded that the bicycle was a fad in the 1890s, but 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 we've kind of screwed up our chronology. So can you go back and just briefly sum up the, the, the fads of the 19th century? Uh, I, I, I had it easy because I said there were none no, before. Okay. Well, there's, but, but, there's, there's a few that come to mind. And again, this depends on whether you, what you consider a fad and a fashion. Like you could talk about beards as a fashion. There's various different kinds of facial hair trends that, that evolve in the, in the mid-19th century. People went from being all clean-shaven, more or less, you know, in the early part of the 19th century to everybody having massive beards down to their waist, or at least the men, really some of them, um, you know, to them being clean-shaven by the end of the 19th century. And you can sort of look at those kinds of things as being fads. But in terms of something that really is sort of a short window uh, fad, uh, one that I came across was the 15 puzzle or the Mystic Square, which was a huge fad in 1880. Um, and I imagine many listeners know this thing, even if they don't know what it's called. It's a grid of a four by four grid with numbers in it, and you slide the tiles around and you try to get them in, in numerical oh, order. Of course, right? You uh, probably I, had these. I, little, I never knew what they were called. But well, you probably had a plastic version of these yeah. as a kid. You got in like in a goodie bag or something for a party or whatever. Or in Christmas crackers, yeah, like yeah. it's it's a cheap little. So those were invented. Um, in the 1870s, they are mass produced in 1879, uh, and they become a real craze in in 1880. Um, this is what the New York Times said about the the 15 puzzle: No pestilence has ever visited this or any other country which is spread with the awful celerity of what is popularly called the 15 puzzle. Because now there are 15 squares, you 15 put in squares per more. It now threatens our free institutions <laughs> inasmuch as every town and hamlet there comes a cry for strong men who will stamp out this terrible puzzle at any cost to our constitution or freedom. This is a threat to the American Republic is the, the, the 15 puzzle. So this would fit the criterion you identified, which is the, the kind of moral panic associated with some of this activity. activities. I think so. I mean, well, the, the bloomers. At least in the 19th century. Well, and bloomers had the same thing. Actually, there were contests for how fast you could solve these things. There was one puzzle in particular that people offered huge money to be able to solve. And it was a version of the 15 puzzle where all the numbers are in order, except for the last two numbers are switched. And people were, there were prizes of, of, of like $1,000, which was back in the 1880, huge amount of money uh, for people trying to solve this. And, and people supposedly went crazy trying to solve the the, what was called the, the 1415 puzzle. It turns out mathematically the 1415 puzzle is unsolvable, and that's why nobody solved it. Um, you actually have to have a certain number of them in the wrong order in order for it to work. Um, but there was a cultural obsession. There were political cartoons that sort of used that everybody, and then it disappeared with, after about six months as a, as a thing people were obsessed with. Um, so, so there was a but hasn't disappeared entirely because these puzzles still they're exist. Not, but, but but doing them isn't you know an if people are not doing them obsessively and, and posting them about on Twitter. If there was a 1880 version of Twitter, people would be saying like how fast they solved their 15 puzzle that morning, just like people are posting their Wordle scores or whatever it is. Uh, so 
but but this idea that like this is an obsession that is distracting people from the the goods of society that like that that society is being undermined by people's obsession with these little things which were also mass produced and sold and, and whatnot like you probably couldn't have had a 15 puzzle craze if there weren't factories that could mass produce them actually there was a, a school i think for the for the deaf that was actually mass produced in some of them originally in 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 boston um but then the abilities for it to sort of spread easily to to other parts of the country, so people right. So this it. seems to fit all of our criteria right. in the sense that it, it's mass produced, it's spread. There's a there's a physical artifact that people use mm. to engage in this activity. There's a low barrier to entry. Um, it's a time waster. It's a, it's a time waster. <laughs> it's, right? like, um, it, it seems to you know if we're back to an intense and widely shared enthusiasm for something, especially one that is short lived. A craze. It mm. seems to tick all those boxes, and that particularly if you add your other criteria concerning yeah, and, and uh, ease well, of entry. Gee, and, yeah, the skill level. You know, if you, you can explain the fifteen puzzle to somebody in fifteen seconds, you say put all the numbers in order, slide the things right, and people can then figure it out. But actually, getting good at it. I mean, the other example of a similar kind of item from a more recent period that seems very, very similar, of course, is the Rubik's Cube. Right. Which was, a, you know, it's a, a physical item that you got to manipulate. And, um, you know, when the Rubik's Cube was at its peak of popularity, it was, you know, I think one of the epitomes of a, of a modern fad. And obviously that also hasn't disappeared, but but it doesn't have the cultural currency now than it did in the know, early 80s. It was hugely popular. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, you, if the, the neighbor's kid had one, you went over and watched them do it. You all tried to see who could do it faster. And what have you? There was a real uh, value attached to it. I think what we want to talk about. There's lots of fads though in the 20th century, and I think that that sort of speaks to the rise of popular mass popular culture in the 20th century, uh, and a lot in the 1920s. What's what's your favorite 1920s? 1920s, I think, has a lot of these. Yeah, and 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 is that? I say this is where allegedly coming out of a pandemic. So, so they were coming out of a pandemic. They mm. were coming in the aftermath of the First World War. There was a period of boom before the Boston thirties. Mm. But you, what's going on in the twenties that contributes to this? Do you think, David? Because there are a number. Yes. And so we've got flagpole sitting and marathon dancing and goldfish swallowing, um, and several others which yeah. you'll probably have yeah. on your list as well. So, so. But what explains this boom in the 20s in fads, the faddishness of the 20s? Um, I think the, all the things you mentioned are probably contributing factors. I think the rise of things like radio as a means of communicating, you know, these activities is, is very important. Uh, so I think there's a sort of a technological element to it. Um, I think there might be a link to the introduction of the Olympics the modern Olympics in the in the in the eighteen nineties, the idea of having being the best in the world at something, and I think there's lots of ideas like, well, if I can't be the fastest person in the world, I can sit on a flagpole for the longest, and he's sort of being famous for doing some. Flagpole sitting is a weird fad. Flagpole. Well, so is most of these are kind of weird, right? Um, oh, let's talk about flagpole sitting. Tell me, what do you know about the origins of flagpole sitting? Well, the fr I. I, I the name of the guy, it's a former sailor, isn't it, is, is credited with, with uh, it escapes me right now. Do it's you, Alvin you know? Shipwreck That's Kelly. It. Yeah, Al <laughs> so Shipwreck Kelly. Famous guy back in the day. Sits on a flagpole and starts this trend of, or this fad, for flagpole sitting. So doing something for a long time Don't. becomes a, a faddish activity. I assume... Because he was a sailor, of course, sailors climb masts. Yes. This is this is a skill that sailors have, so it makes sense that he was a sailor. Um, it's not always clear you have to climb the flagpole first, but yes, you have to sort of sit up on there. Right. Uh, it's still a bizarre. I mean, I, I, what's your take on it? I, I can't really explain. It. And this, by definition, forgive the mm. pun, seems to <laughs> um, seems to violate your low bar of entry, not just because it's high, but also because it there are is a particular skill involved in this being able to sit up there, sit on top of a well, flagpole. Well, I mean, there's, there's, it's a platform. You're, you're not sitting on. You're, you're not sitting on the. You're not nailing oneself on, on a flagpole. So you're, you're climbing a flag, going, climbing a flagpole and sitting on or climbing a pole mm. and sitting on a small platform for long periods of time. Yes, it seems. 
Well, so Kelly, his first time he does it, he does it for 13 hours. And everyone's like, ooh, that's exciting. Then there, you know, as this fad caught on, people were doing it for 12, 17, and then 21 days. Um, by the end of the 1920s, uh, Shipwreck Kelly um, sat on a flagpole for 49 days in Atlantic City. Um, and so I think it's, I mean, in some ways it is a low barrier. I mean, like the only thing that's stopping you or me from breaking Shipwreck Kelly's record is finding 49 days where we can sit on top of a flagpole. Sure. We, it's a matter of just, just, just perseverance, not necessarily a skill set. You and I both know how to sit on a platform. We both could do that. Whether we could have the perseverance to do that for 49 days um, is a, just a different question. Well, because it's our 200th episode, I think we should do it for 200 days. days. Oh, but <laughs> you first, Frank. I'll ask you. Um, but anyway, and, and does when does flagpole sitting go out of style? Go out, you know, fads come and go. So when does the so fad end? So this fad seems to end around 1930. Right, when people have real problems in the depression. <laughs> well, I mean, the other sort of similar... Um, craze fad during the 1920s to flagpole sitting was dance marathons, which essentially is the same kind of activity. You are competing to see how long you can dance. Um, and, you know, they'd have these competitions and couples would, would, would basically, you basically just have to remain upright and moving for, for as long as you could. Um, Often the, the dancers were given breaks, so you could dance for 45 minutes and you get 15 minute breaks to, to use the restroom or what have you. Uh, but these dance marathons would go on for days and days and some cases, some cases weeks. And in the once the depression comes, the prize money becomes really, I mean, the prize money was important before, but mm. it kind of takes almost a sinister turn. If you've read They Shoot Horses, don't yeah. they, or seen the film, you realize the kind of desperation behind So dance marathons as a fad... Um, Start as a kind of endurance gimmick, gimmick but yeah. then I, I think take a kind of sinister turn. Well, I mean, it, they become deadly. People well, die yeah. in these things, right? And and there are are multiple examples of, of people, you know, collapsing and, and dying on the dance floor. Um, in fact, there are a number of communities that pass laws against marathon dancing because it was seen as a public health threat. On the other hand, they were very popular, you know, and it was a, a cheap um, entertainment. People, I mean, the way the way these things were fine, people would pay to go and watch other people, you know, dance for, for days on end and, and seeing, like, well, are they going to, you know, collapse or not? Um, and eventually, most all of them do. Um, but, you know, thinking about the, the technology of it, like the barrier of entry is very low, but it does require... Um, you know, the introduction of recorded music. You can't have a dance marathon with a live band the entire time. Um, often, in most cases, they had live bands for, for part of the day, but then the rest of it is they're, uh, based on, on playing, playing records. Um, but I think there's a similar you know, theme in, in both of those things about how long can people you know, persist in an otherwise, you know, banal activity um well, anything else from the 20s that well they... there are two that have uh one which is difficult to explain and is long forgotten and the other that that has persisted so playing mahjong is the is the cultural practice that that has persisted and that mm. people still play mahjong uh but mahjong the the chinese game um really started to boom in the United States, at least in, in the 20s. Now, now why, why, why did people start playing Mahjong, which is a very old game, I, I gather, in China? Why did people start to play it in the 20s? You tell me. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, mean, I think, so... These kind of, Presumably, I mean, I think, the, the, the games themselves, the tiles were available for sale. Well, so the guy who imported them, I did, the guy who imported them was a, um, a guy who worked for Standard Oil. And he was sent to China. He said, this right. is a cool game. Brings them back. Uh, a guy named Joseph Pope Babcock. Uh, he brings them back in 1923, but then he creates a separate set of rules for Americans because the Chinese rules are too complicated. Uh, so they, they create their own uh, simplified and, and a particularly American set of rules for American Mahjong. There's a move, for instance, American Mahjong called the Charleston, which is not a move, which is based on a dance. Based on a fashionable dance, which was a fad in the 20s. 20s. But, you know, they, they, they introduced that. It, but... 
Mahjong for a brief period of time was phenomenally popular in the United States. It was a game that everybody played much in the same way everyone briefly played Wordle. Um, well, I don't know why you're using the past tense. People are still playing, playing Wordle. Wordle. No, no, that was yesterday, frankly. The fad has come and gone, right? Like we got, um, and I, well, I think there's, you know, the 20s are sort of the... the well, sorry, and then there's the oh, other one that, oh, I, that I didn't mention yet, which was, has come and gone, mm. which is very bizarre, which is goldfish swallowing. But well, that which, didn't happen until the 30s. I oh, right. Is that, oh, because it starts at Harvard in the 30s, the 30s right? Yes. But, but, um, and that's exactly what it says, people swallowing goldfish. Yeah, the, the origin story for that... Uh, it's is, bro behavior. It's total frat boy stuff. They might not have started a fraternity. Well, no, no, no. Rights, it's, 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 I, so the, the, there was a freshman at, at Harvard University, the, the, the distinguished institution of higher learning there in, in your uh, you know, greater Boston area, um, by the name of uh, Lorther Win, uh, Winnington Jr., which is a very good Harvard name. <laughs> Winnington Jr., yeah. He, uh, Sounds like somebody created by Jay Gatz, by, by F. Yes, Fitzgerald. Yes, he does sound very much like a, a potentially fictional character. Uh, he swallowed a goldfish to win a $10 bet. And then goldfish swallowing caught on from there. There was Live goldfish. Live goldfish. Not the, the crackers. No, no, no. That would be easy. Although you probably would choke on it. But anyway, um, there was even a, a briefly an International Goldfish Gulping Association. Um, the record for goldfish gulping uh, belongs to a, a young man named uh, Joe DiLibertino, uh, uh, who went to Clark University. He sucked down 89 goldfish. In how long? In, uh, in one sitting. I right. Think. So <laughs> until he decided to so, throw so up. So the goldfish know. swallowing fad hmm. seems to me that there is, a, there is a fad, there's a trend in, trend in fads, that's a redundancy. Hmm. There's a consistent kind of a fad, a type of fad, which is swallowing stuff, eating stuff. Mm. So whether it's the cinnamon chug, so the goldfish swallowing might be the might be the, the kind of beginning of this, but it's the cinnamon challenge, it's the Tide Pod challenge, it's the Coney Island hot dog. Don't do any contest. of these things. Yeah, don't do any of them. Either. That's right. But but the hot dog eating contest, you know, eating lots of foods, eating chicken wing challenges, all yeah. these kinds of things. Well, is that would what, you what see them all as yes. a piece? Uh, yes. One of the other things about this um, fad, and I think some of these other ones, can it be a fad unless it's covered in the New York Times? Or <laughs> the New York Times buys <laughs> it. <laughs> because, I mean, if you look at the goldfish swallowing child, I they know it's sounding very elitist now. <laughs> but I think there, there requires to be some kind of media attention before the fad is sort of... Le- the media plays a very interesting role in both uh, covering these things but then spreading them. You know, but also ending them. So, 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 so let me let me let me add a corollary mm. to what you just said. The mass media is required to have a fad. Arguably, once the New York Times starts covering it, that's the end, the end of the of fad. fad. <laughs> so yeah, the the goldfish swallowing fad was chronicled in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the L.A. Times. There's a dance craze called the the goldfish swallow. The I don't know, which. In supposed to mimic swallowing a goldfish in the dance. I, I haven't seen any video of it. I won't think that's coming back. Um, but I think that that the media coverage I think is, is an important part of, of taking this thing that emerged on a college campus uh, and making it into maybe a more of a, a national phenomenon. Um, it became so popular that the Massachusetts uh, legislature tried to pass a bill to stop it. Uh, there was a state senator who tried to he crafted a bill to preserve fish from cruel and wanton consumption. Well, there is a kind of animal cruelty animal cruelty element to this, to be to sure. To be sure, right. Um, or freshman hazing. Who knows? Uh, listeners, do not swallow goldfish. They are good pets, but... Don't bad. swallow any of your pets. Uh, so, so, <laughs> okay. so, Wise words, Frank. So, so we get another boom in fads in the 20th century in the 50s. I'm yes. interested in the 20s and the 50s because these are both post-war periods yeah. of affluence. And uh, so we get all kinds of things that we associate with more contemporary faddish mm-hmm. behavior. So um, it, really the 50s and the 60s. We could kind of concertina them and take yes. them together. But we're talking about... Phone booth crashing, which actually starts in South Africa and then spreads around the world, which is seeing how many people you can get in a phone booth. That's very that's there's a fad for that yes. in the fifties. Um, there, there, are, there are a number of what are the other fifties fads you've got? Well, like the hula, the hula hoops. Hoop. Yep. 
you know, and I think pogo sticks. Pogo, those are you know the hula hoop is an interesting one because you know people have been playing with hoops for years, but the introduction of a of a plastic hoop, you know, all of a sudden took this thing that and a, a good name for it um, in nineteen fifty eight. Uh, you know, really sort of made this item a fad. They they sold twenty five million plastic hoops in less than four months and a hundred million hoops in two years. Which means presumably, I, mean, I don't know how many what the market is potentially for hula hoops, but I would imagine a hundred million is basically everybody who would potentially have a hula hoop has a hula hoop. Um, so much so that they stopped manufacturing them because they had too many. They they overproduced them and there wasn't a market for them anymore. Uh, so it's a fad that that uh, you know self corrected in many ways. Uh, everybody who had uh, had that experience uh, had that experience, and there's only so much you can do with a hula hoop. I never did the hula hoop thing. I was not good at that. Yeah, me neither. I, 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 I'm struck by how few of these these fads, you know, I'm familiar with some of them that, that have persisted, but I haven't participated in any of them. But you're a gamer. You play video games. I do play video, video games. games. Are and video then, games faddish in terms of some come into style and some go out? Yeah. I, well, I mean, video games themselves, themselves are not a fad. fad. To be sure. That's a good question. Um, I think there are certain kinds of games that become fads, but I think fads have to be social in some way i mean i think the the video game you you play by yourself you know um it's hard to think of that as a fad because everyone's doing that in isolation but the games that you play with other people i think that could be seen as faddish um i have to think more about that all right so you know anything else from the 50s besides the uh, ones we've talked about. I mean, there, there is a whole set of, of dance moves in the 50s that are faddish. Yeah, the twist is the late 50s, early 60s. But I'm interested with in dance moves. You know, the Charleston we talked about from the 20s, you get the twist, you get a number of dances associated with various forms of popular music down to the present. Yeah, yeah to be sure. Uh, TikTok dances. You've got swing dancing in the 20s, and then it makes a comeback in the 90s. Mm. Um are dances fads? Because people, humanity's danced for as long as there's been music, right? Which is forever. Uh, and, and so, or is it, a, again, a question of fashion? Well, or does it, is there a degree of silliness? So you would, ne- like, you could learn the Charleston in an appropriate social situation, do the Charleston, <laughs> and it would be fine. Yes. You know, or, or you know, it, it's, a, it's a recognized form of, da- recognized by whom? I, 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 what I mean is, the Macarena is silly. Yes. Right? And so, so I would draw this. I, I think I can't explain it. I think I can see why the Macarena might have in the, in the mid-90s might have been a fad. Mm. But the Charleston is a dance style that evolves. Is, is yes. that a fair well, distinction? Okay, here's, here's a distinction I would draw. There, I think there are fad dances in which everybody who does them more or less is doing them correctly. So the Macarena, the YMCA, you know, uh, there are some line dances maybe. Like, you never say, oh, that person's really good at the YMCA. Watch them do it, right? Like, that's not a thing you would say. But it's something you can participate in, and it was very popular at various points in time. But same with Macarena. You would never say, you know, you know you're good, but check out Johnny. He's really good. No, but whereas the Charleston um, or some other dances, they, they may be popular at certain points in time. Even the twist, which is simple, so but... Some simple. people are better at it than others. But, like, there's, there's a finite skill set there to develop, one would imagine. So wait, I'm confused. Is the twist a fad? I, mean, I, I like the, this distinction. I made. think the twist is a fad. Okay, so the twist is a fad. The Macarena is definitely a, a fad, fad. But the Charleston is not, even if it had its origin and it was born as a fad. fad. Yeah, I think right now, if you look at sort of where the Charleston has developed to, I mean, I think it's a, it's a, it's a dance that's evolved over time. The Charleston today looks different from the Charleston from the 20s. You know, and I think there are people who practice days on end to become better at the Charleston. So, so bear with me here. Okay. Um, and, and we were aiming for a fun episode for 200 people. So if you're still listening, you, you asked for it. <laughs> Charleston is the bicycle ride of dancing fads. So, it, or the bicycle of, dance, uh, of fad dances in that it began as a fad, but becomes a permanent part of the cultural landscape. I think so. Is that, is that, that, a, that, that, is that a fair distinction? I'd go with that, sure. Yeah, and, and given the stakes here you, are very low, I think I'm happy to agree with you on that. Listeners, if you want evidence that this is this podcast is not scripted, you've just had it. it. Is. Well, <laughs> I don't think they've under any illusions. <laughs> so, this is so, either not scripted or so scripted that it's uh, 
made to seem. Uh, as for the Macarena, uh, the Macarena, there's one thing I want to tell people, and especially our younger listeners. And this is one of, one of the qualities of a fat is it's very difficult to explain to people after the fact, mm. right? It's very difficult to explain to people how big the Macarena was in the mid-90s. I ask you to Google Hillary Clinton doing the Macarena. You can see video of Hillary Clinton, then the First Lady of the United States, doing the Macarena at the 1996 Democratic Convention. The entire convention's doing it. It's going to blow your mind. It's crazy to see this convention of a major political party nominating a sitting president of the United States who would be reelected uh, in 1996 doing the Macarena. There's a the really good episode of the Slate podcast one year that looks at 1995 that has an episode on the Macarena and it's just a fascinating story because it's a weird song and a weird dance and, and everybody was doing it. Um, I never learned it. I did, the whole thing was stupid to me, but I had other things going on in my life then. Um, another fad from a slightly more recent period that, that I think uh, also sort of appeared and then disappeared rather quickly was streaking. Yeah, big in the 70s. Big in, especially like there's a window from like 1973 to 1974 in which streaking was, you know, major part of, of American popular culture. And again, it seems to start on college Global campus. popular culture too. Oh, to, oh, to be sure, it right. It happened here. Well, I think it, it seems to start in the United States like it seems to Michigan State University claims credit for it. I'm not quite sure why they'd claim credit for this. Um, but, you know, it's covered in Time magazine and then it, it does seem to spread pretty rapidly both within the United States and then internationally. Um, there was a song called The Streak by Ray Stevens, which I don't remember. I which, do. I... Uh, which was a number one hit on, on the Billboard 100 in May 1974. Um you know, so a novelty song by its very definition is a fad, and and you know here's a fad about a fad, um, but it's also something that seemed to, you know, largely disappear after 1975. You, know, you still see occasional streakers at at particular places and times, but it's uh, doesn't have the cultural currency that it did uh, for that brief moment. Yeah, that's right. I mean, streaking was a big thing in the mid 70s. <laughs> where we're You'd see it, you know, at sporting events, for example, and they cut away from, you know, whatever the, the broadcast uh, so they didn't shock our sensibility. So, so streaking, but you're right, it seems to have gone out of fad. Well, well fads are supposed to be short-lived. And well, there was a, a famously a, a case at, at the Academy Awards where somebody streaked the Academy Awards in 1974, and there's a debate about whether that was somebody legitimately streaking the Academy Awards or whether that was a planned stunt that the television network devised to get ratings and, and what have you. Um, I think the evidence now points to the latter. Uh, but, uh, you know, one can think about you know, fads, you know, how do fads emerge and why do fads emerge? What is it about, you know, things going on in 1973, 1974 that's going to lead to this as a activity people are attracted to? I think there's a ways in which this is a, a response to... Uh, the sexual revolution, a response to feminism and various kinds of campus protest activities. Um, yeah, David, don't theorize too much. Everybody was stoned in the 70s. Too. Okay, so, so I think, I think the, the people hypothesis. wasted people running around naked. Like, I think, you know, I, I think if people were either drunk or high and they said, yeah, I'm going to do it. Okay. I, I think that, that might have been, I mean, it is a response to all those, those other things, things, but also sometimes it's just people doing stupid stuff. I mean, the other one that's interesting to me that's, also starts at, on campus is the wave among at crowds yes. among, at sporting events and other events, but particularly sporting events. And so that started in the early '80s at the University of Washington. At least it's that's the conventional origin story, if, if, if I have this mm. correctly. And then it spreads as the wave is supposed mm. to do. Uh, you know, it's always called the Mexican wave here in the UK. Really, and the reason for well, because it spread and and I. It spread, and UK people saw it for the first time, and global people saw it. The global audience really saw it at the World Cup in Mexico in 1986. The, oh, okay. The football, World, soccer, World Cup. And so it's always called the Mexican wave here, even though it started probably six years, six, five or six years earlier in the University of Washington. And it started at college football games in the United States. And now it's a global phenomenon. So was that a fad, or is it... Because it was very, very popular. popular. Yeah. But it still happens. happens. Routinely. I mean, I, I, that's a good question. I mean, and then what the grounds, what is it that makes fads 
stick around. It's a low barrier to entry. It fits all your, your criteria. Um, you know, what is it that causes fads to end? I think is a good question. And I'm not sure we have a good answer for that. I mean, I think the, the, these are so idiosyncratic about what things catch on when they do. It's hard to make sense of why, you know, Wordle, if that's our sort of latest trend. Like, there are a million games you can download onto your iPhone. And hundreds of thousands of Word games you can download. Why is it that this one caught on when it did, why it did, you know, and why did it have that sort of, you know, over the past couple of months or whenever this popularity has, has existed, why does that happen? Why did everyone start making sourdough bread beginning of the pandemic? I don't have the faintest idea. Um, and why did, you know, I can understand how people stop making sourdough bread because once you've mastered sourdough bread, that you can check that off your to-do list. Um, but... Uh, Okay, David. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. We need a lightning round because I'm. I'm conscious of the time. time. Okay, so give me, give me the. These are, these are recent. Let me just run through this list of things in no particular order from the past, really the past thirty or forty years. Okay. Pet rocks, Beanie Babies, water beds, hacky sacks, Rubik's cube, Cabbage Patch Kids, Furbies, flash mobs, fidget spinners, Pokemon in all its forms. God, yeah. my son. I bought so many Pokemon cards at one point. I'm, I'm the same. Um, yes. Uh, the Slinky, Silly Putty, those are older, actually. Grumpy Cat, can we, are memes fads? Because um, if we're going to do that, then we have to talk about Charlie Bit My Finger. Remember that? Um, Angry Birds. Well, I think these we, all fads. Uh, what did I leave out? Oh, I think you left out probably a million things yeah. that, that aren't coming to mind right now. I, mean, I think one of the things that we're seeing right now is that popular culture and popular discourse, you know, is... I don't want to say it's maybe more made up of fads, or fads are more prominent in 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 popular culture than it than they once were. Um, I don't know. What do you think about that? Is is the is the internet the democratization and spreading of things? I, I think a different... I, I think it's a combination of you know we talked about the importance of the market. I think the internet and the fact that we all have our own mass media at our fingertips. Um, has made it possible for fads to really take off. Although a lot of those things like pet rocks, beanie babies, mm. etc., predate the internet. Uh, so, so not all of them, but I, I think the market elements to it. But I want to ask you a question. Well, the pet rock one is interesting because I think the pet rock was designed to be a, be a fad, right? Which I think is different than, than most of these other things. Like, you know, when um, the guy swallowed the goldfish at Harvard to win the 10 bucks, I think he's winning about winning the 10 bucks. The guy who put the eyes on the pet rock to sell it as a pet rock was thinking, how can I commercialize this and make this into a, a, a profit-making enterprise? And I think oh, this... I forgot mood rings, live yes. strong bracelets. God, there are so many. Uh, um, so, so the pet rock then is a, is what you would have called an astroturf fad. I would I, I would think that there's a you know one of the things that's happened is people recognize that if you can catch one of these at the right moment in time, you can make a phenomenal amount of money. And Just think, like a Pokemon. Well, <laughs> you know, um, or or. You know, if you can make something collectible as a fad, you know, obviously if you time those right, you can make a lot of money. Um, I think I sort of start that kind of fad with in the 50s. I think of like the hula hoop as being sort of the prototype for that, you know, where you can have a single product, a cheap to manufacture product that really grips people and you can sell a bunch of them in a very short amount of time and then, you know, retire to your um, beach house or something. Okay, so I've got one. I've got a question for us to end on then. David, okay. Which is, uh, you talked about mania and craze and the language of fads in the 19th century. Uh, I, I won't claim that we're more enlightened. Um, however, what I will ask you is the following. Are fads bad? Um, that's a good question. I, I think they are... Uh... For the most part, relatively harmless, unless you're a goldfish. Um, you know, obviously some of them are dangerous, so those are those are bad. But I think most of them are kind of a harmless mode of of coping with um, certain kinds of social interactions. I mean, ultimately, I think all these fads are, are fundamental. All the ones we talked about are are social things. Um, they're things that, that people sort of either participate in or they observe and, and so are part of popular culture in, in that sense. Um, what do you think? Are they harmful? Are you, are you, because I mean, obviously there's a moral panic element with some of these, 
especially when the ones that are seen as being transgressive, whether that's bloomers or, or streaking, both of which which were labeled as right. you know elements of the coming collapse of society. Uh, but everybody, you know, I think in puzzle. sorry, I think in most cases, you know, transgressive. I'm not worried about transgressive fads that are are going to destroy civilization because we've seen multiple examples and they haven't destroyed civilization. Uh, as we know it, uh, I think some of them are dangerous. So I think I think we, we put those in a separate category. The ones that are actually dangerous are, by definition, uh, or uh, represent a physical threat to people or physical harm to people. Then uh, are, are bad. Uh, I think most of them are. You know, the the, the whether it's social media, the whole internet is designed for uh, to 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 demand our attention and waste our time at some level. <laughs> and fads are just a variation of that. So I don't know why the yo-yo, which was a one we haven't mentioned yet, which is a fad in the fifties. That uh, why why is is the yo-yo any worse than being on if playing with a yo-yo any worse? Than, and I'm actually gesturing people, which is useful again. Is is that any worse than spending your time on Twitter? It's probably less harmful than being on Twitter, frankly. Um, so yeah. so I, I don't, I, I think probably on balance, no. I think people, if people want to divert themselves and enjoy themselves, provided it doesn't physically harm themselves or others or psychologically harm themselves, I don't think there's any, I don't think they're bad. Yeah. I don't think they're bad. I mean, I, I'm, and some of these things can come back. The fact that the a fad was once, you know, a fad doesn't mean that, they, that they're forever dead. I mean, I think the, there was a yo-yo comeback in 1987. That's right. I remember um, that. I remember everyone had a yo-yo, and, and I didn't have a yo-yo, and I felt bad about that. Uh, when I got one, I wasn't very good at it, but that's a different story. Um, uh, but, you know, the, 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 these fads are, um, you know, they things catch on for a reason, and, and you know, the, the hula hoop may make a comeback. The uh, 15 puzzle may make a comeback. Um, we, we will see. Uh but uh, undoubtedly, I think that the prominence of, of fads in popular culture and the kind of, of space they occupy now is as prominent as they ever, ever have been, even in compared to the heydays of the 20s and the, and the 50s, uh, just in terms of, of how much of popular culture is, is devoted to uh, relatively short-lived activities activities also we're able to capture and perpetuate that activity on social media and tiktok and and whatever i'm not on tiktok either so no me neither so so, uh, this is what the kids tell me about what's going on (laughs) right time for last drop what you got right i want to recommend an essay david by rory stewart in the not the most recent issue of foreign affairs but the uh december issue of foreign affairs um and stewart will be known to some of our our listeners as a Candidate for the Tory leadership um, last time around, he lost out to 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 Boris Johnson, the current prime minister. But Stewart was an MP. Uh, he now teaches at Yale. He 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 was very active in kind of British military and foreign policy circles for a while. And and he wrote an essay called "The Last Days of Intervention," and it's about Afghanistan. But it actually does a really interesting job for us as historians because what Stuart does in this essay, which I found quite compelling, is he looks at what he calls the age of intervention, which began with the NATO intervention in the Balkans in the mid-90s and extended down, as he sees it, to the withdrawal from Afghanistan last uh, August, September. And Stuart tries to present this in historic context and, and, and examine some of the themes that emerge from looking at the interventions in the Balkans, uh, as well as Afghanistan, Iraq, and so on. And it's a very thoughtful essay. I mean, his his conclusion is that we should have stayed in Afghanistan and you could have had a small-scale presence, and that's mm. the way to do it. He looks at what he saw as successful and unsuccessful interventions. He sees the intervention in the Balkans, for example, as generally successful, and the intervention in the wider Middle East is unsuccessful. Very interesting essay. Provides a kind of his, seeking to provide a historic overview um, for events that are often not seen together, and I found it quite useful. Cool. Interesting. What about you, David? What do you have? Uh, I want to recommend an article in The New Yorker by Anna Holmes on Margaret Wise Brown, uh, who is Probably a name that many listeners may not know, but you're familiar with her work. Uh, she is the author of Goodnight Moon. Did you read Goodnight Moon to a, your kids? A million times. Um, yes, yes. We could probably both recite Goodnight Moon, but that would get us a copyright flag. Um, and also Runaway Bunny, which you may have may have read, an excellent uh, uh, children's book. Um, but she had a fascinating and unfortunately very brief 
uh, personal life. And so this is an article about who she, the, the author behind those books that I think have shaped all of our lives, or at least many people's lives in the, in the past 50 years. Um, and, and she's not who you think you, who would you would expect her, her personal life is much more interesting and complicated than what you'd expect from the author of Good Night Moon. So she put her kids to sleep and partied. Is that what you're uh, yeah, that's that's? Well, I'll read the article to find out. But okay. it's uh, exciting stuff. Excellent. Right. Cheers, Cheers, David. Happy two hundred. Happy two hundred. <laughs> We're clearly not a fad. We're lasting longer than that. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at WhiskeyRebelPod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes. 